Hello, and welcome to another episode of Worked Up, the podcast where you learn to navigate the workplace, business, and your career with a little more ease and a lot less angst. I'm your host, Jacqueline Beck, and today we have Cole Strandberg in the studio live on a very rainy morning. Welcome, Cole. Thank you so much for having me. Thrilled to be here and looking forward to our conversation. Same here. By way of background, Cole is an investment banker. He specializes in mergers and acquisitions within the automotive aftermarket. So think repairs, collisions, etc. He's host of podcast, The Collision Vision. Check it out. And he has a really interesting story. So thank you for being here. I'm excited too. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm an avid listener and fan of Worked Up. So it's an honor. That means a lot. Thank you. Do you mind sharing with the audience your background, where you've gotten to, where how you've gotten to where you are today, et cetera? Yeah. And I'll, I'll try to keep it a little bit brief, but born and raised in Boca Raton, Florida, attended Ole Miss for undergrad. And out of school, I always had in my mind that I wanted to be an investment banker. We talked American Psycho. We did. Uh, you know, things along those lines. So definitely built that up in my mind. And that was the ultimate goal and ended up joining a boutique investment bank out of South Florida immediately out of undergrad where I did institutional equity sales. As a 22, 23 year old was an incredible experience. Got to travel on deal and non-deal road shows, working with portfolio managers with the Harvard MBAs, working with executives of publicly traded companies. Again, as a 22 or 23 year old was such a cool experience and, and really enjoyed that. Somewhat into that tenure, the family business came calling. My dad started a business within the automotive aftermarket, a distribution company back in 1988. And he came calling to me because he was starting to get some acquisition interest and it had become a really nice business. And I felt that I could help in that process and selfishly wanted to be a part of that process myself. I had been involved kind of on the sidelines in different transactions to actually be involved with skin in the game as a seller was really cool. And it was a very unique, challenging experience that has given me a lot of ability to empathize in my current role. We ended up selling the company, partnering with a private equity group after about three years, uh, some frogs kissed, some being left at the altar and ended up finding the right partner. But it definitely showed me the importance of the M&A process being very much like dating, right? You want to make sure like the money's big for sure. Selling your business, you're only doing this once, maybe twice in your life but the partner is every bit as important and finding that right partner is so important. So we did uh, in about three years and under three years, we ended up making seven acquisitions as an add-on to our platform, wow. quadrupled revenue, quadrupled headcount, just an absolute cool experience, success story for private equity. It shows the magic of, of scale and kind of operational experience within private equity. After six years in total there, ended up making the leap back into investment banking, where I now, as you mentioned, focus on mergers and acquisitions and capital raising within primarily the automotive aftermarket with a firm called Focus Investment Banking, who's one of the most active investment banks in the lower middle market. Very cool. I'm listening to your story. The first question I have to ask is, please tell me American Psycho was not your inspiration for going not. into investment banking. Right when I said that, I was like, oh God, that actually sounds horrible. No, 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 uh, definitely not. Nor was Wolf of Wall Street, anything like that. It was all pure. It was all pure. Oh, yeah. oh yes, pure of heart, <laughs> I'm sure. 
fair warning, I'm pretty sure there's going to be a lot of really dorky finance jokes that happen yes. probably around thick business cards and tables at Dorcia that happen throughout this podcast. I love it. I also, yeah, business cards are huge, thicker, the better. I will say though, and real quick in my focus in the lower middle market is so cool because transactions in the lower middle market are with business owners, with family businesses who have worked really hard to build something and now they're creating generational wealth. So from an M&A perspective, it is is really the most fulfilling, cool stories, great people. So I do feel really good about that side of things. Well, that's a great segue because I do want to dig into that. What strikes me about your story is that you went from what I would call a very institutional place, right? When you were talking about being 22, 23, going on road shows with the Harvard MBAs, right? Going back to a family business, which not only was a family run business, but your family run business. Mm -hmm. So how was that transition from the institutional to the family world? It was kind of crazy. Yeah. Went from suits and ties and thick business cards to polos and jeans and getting really dirty out on job sites. So it was a totally weird transition, uh, but it went really well. I worked with my dad, with my mom, with my now wife it was such a cool experience. And you hear so many horror stories of family business. This was not one. Okay. I loved working with my family. I think something else that was unique was the family business is older than me. And so I knew a lot of these employees from when I was a little kid. They would show mm -hmm. up to the t-ball games and things like that. So coming in, had to earn their respect in a way and, uh, and, and did for sure. How did you earn that respect? Oh, started low for sure. Um, went out on job sites, did the travel, did kind of the, the tough stuff. Not to say I started from the very beginning. Certainly, I, I like to think I brought a bit of a advantage from, from my previous experiences and things along those lines. But yeah, focusing on being friends to some extent, getting to know everybody beyond what I did on a surface level and understanding what motivates, understanding why they're doing what they're doing. It was, it was a lot of fun getting to know and become friends with people I had known for a long time, just in a very different way. It kind of makes me think about when you grow up and you start looking at your parents' not so much as these infallible superheroes, but as people, mm -hmm. right? You had these figures in your life who you'd known for a really long time and you had to learn to relate to them from a very different perspective. And that's a very hard thing to do. Oh yeah. A lot of people I speak to, particularly people who are at one organization for a long time, get frustrated They'll always see me as the young analyst. They'll always see me as the 21 year old, no matter if I'm 35, no matter if I'm 40. So what do you think helped you overcome that barrier of being like, oh, they're the boss's kid who I used to see run around the baseball <laughs> diamond? Yeah. I, to some extent, that's always a bit of a chip on your shoulder and something you have to be aware of. Yeah. I think my focus was the only way to get through it is to show a level of competency and, and getting it done and yeah. knowing, Hey, he's, he's handling it. He's got it. And I think that was key doing the stuff that was brutal, right? Jumping in front of the angry customers and handling a situation, taking the bull by the horns and getting things done that weren't previously able to get done, making things better in some way. Like that's the only way to get past that. And it takes time. Get your hands dirty. Yeah. Lead by example. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Prove that you're willing to get into the thick of it. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Show, show your value. Yeah, absolutely. The fact that it's your family 
is very interesting. Now you said you loved working with your family. There are a lot of very interesting dynamics that mm -hmm. come up when working with family. How would you say that the interpersonal dynamics differed from being in an institutional environment? Very different. And I will say family businesses come with negatives and positives in that the negative is frankly, you're likely held to a higher standard than you are as a typical employee. The benefit is you can get a seat at the table a little bit earlier, right? Yeah. There's certainly advantages that come with that. So that was good, right? I could sit in, in in the strategy meetings and play a bigger impact than I could as a cog in a bigger non-family business machine. To me, the ultimate kind of determination of whether or not someone's going to be able to thrive in a family business environment is the ability to compartmentalize. Mm. It's the ability to leave the work <laughs> argument at work and keep that from becoming the home argument. And that's with the parents a little bit easier. With my now wife, could be, you know, I, I, we go home. How do we separate it? Fortunately, everyone was really good at compartmentalizing. I would go from a uh, disagreement at work with one of my parents to dinner and it's it's completely forgotten until the next morning. And that, that was my family business superpower. A lot of people struggle with that, even if they're in big institutions. Mm -hmm. What tips do you have for people who need to learn to compartmentalize? So I say all that to say, I'm actually horrible at leaving work at work. I am bad at that. I will take the stresses of work home. I will struggle to disconnect, but I think I was able to leave the workplace grudges and arguments at home. And I don't even know that I could give advice other than do your best to, uh, to shift the mindset from coworker or employee to son, daughter, spouse, whatever that is. And it takes some practice, but if you can do it, 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 it makes the family business atmosphere just so good. And I would say even out of a family business atmosphere, compartmentalization is so key mm -hmm. because, you know, it goes back to being present and maybe that sounds foofy on some level, but the reality is, you know, if you're stressed at work, what are you going to do? Take that home and take it out on your spouse or your kid or your dog or whoever's at home waiting for you. Yep. Right. And, and it's hard to do particularly because business is a personal thing, particularly when it's your family, oh, yeah. but it's, when you're dealing with human beings, which a lot of people are, particularly in management and leadership, you can take things on very personally. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, a lot of really good employees take ownership in what they do. So it's not a unique thing to business owners or family business members. It's so challenging though, not to let it impact you at home from the stresses of business, a customer issue, a, a deal issue, whatever that may be. Uh, this morning I woke up at six, just thought of something like, all right, I, got to do this was stressed out. So it's very hard. It's very easy to say how great it is to leave things at home. It's very hard to, or leave things at work rather very hard to actually do it. Yeah. The only thing I've found that can really help other than therapy <laughs> is focusing on facts mm -hmm. and focusing on what's in my control and what's not in my control. Yeah. Yep. Love it. Absolutely. So you mentioned that one of the things you love in working in the lower middle market is the fact that you are working with a lot of family businesses and they're building generational wealth. You're leveraging your experience working within your family business. What observations do you have about that space in particular that can maybe help people think about their own 
business or career journeys? Yeah, so much, so many different directions to go there. I think, yeah, firstly, just the, the people typically that you find in the lower middle market, I love these stories. So much of my job in mergers and acquisitions and representing companies on the sell side is learning that story and then conveying that story to potential investors as clearly and as accurately as possible. So the story piece is uh, such a fun part of it, getting to know these people, what drives them, how did this start, how did this evolve into what it is today, and helping these people, knowing like, hey, this is, this is not a faceless corporation that's going through a transaction. This is a family who's about to change their life based on what they've built over the past 10, 20, 30 years. From a actual kind of market perspective, lower middle market M&A is very hot right now, even with some of the questionable things happening in the economy as a whole. Uh, fortunately, private equity is sitting on a lot of dry powder. They're actively seeking just really good quality businesses. And as I experienced in my own family business, there's an opportunity for that second bite of the apple, right? Hanging around, keeping some equity in the business, benefiting longtime employees and family members who want to hang on and keep growing that with some additional resources. It's a very, very cool exit opportunity for many business owners. For some reason, the concept of control is popping into my head. Oh yeah. Yep. You give that up in a lot of cases. And so many business owners cannot transition to becoming employees for yeah. sure, but so many can. And, and even if it's in a CEO type role, that is what happened in the case of my family business. The entire family stayed on for three plus years after the transaction, worked really well with our private equity partners. It was just such a great match. Ended up uh, three of the four of us went our separate ways toward the beginning of 2022. Uh, my dad's still there uh, functioning as chairman. My wife ended up making a career move. I ended up making a career move and, and my mom ended up retiring. So very happy for her. But yeah, that transition is very tricky for many people. I think we handled it pretty well. And I think part of it's just kind of understanding that you got paid some money to give up that control. Yeah. So much of what you're talking about is relationships, right? Very much so. And it's really highlighted by this, what I would call marriage between the private equity company and your family business, right? Mm -hmm. Now you're coming at it from a really positive perspective that it worked great, right? It worked seamlessly. A lot of transactions don't necessarily go that way. Most, I mean, a lot, right? You're, you're absolutely right. So what do you think made your transaction successful? That is a great question. And part of it's luck. Part of it is, you mentioned that marriage term, and I mentioned dating early on. We got to really know our potential investment partners, and that's huge. So a little bit of background there. I mentioned the family business had been approached by some potential acquirers. Those were strategic in nature, and uh, we ended up kind of dancing with some strategic acquirers for pretty long, a pretty extensive amount of time before realizing this is not going to be the right fit. And we had some things to fix internally. And we did, we took some time before going to market, ended up aligning with an investment bank to run a full process. And that allowed us exposure to, you know, a dozen private equity groups, many more saw the sim in the book, but we ended up speaking with a dozen, ended up doing dinner with call it five. And that really allowed us to get to know our partners on a partner level. And it became more than a, a price and a size of check. It became, 
our plans and our goals and our values align. And that's every bit as important, if not more important than, than the dollar amount. How did you look for those signs during those dinners and in those conversations? Another great question. And I don't really have a great answer for that other than <laughs> feel. I'll use the word vibes, right? We ended up partnering with a group out of Atlanta. My family is all from the Atlanta area. It's a very uh, tight-knit Southern community, right? And in comparison, for example, we met with some Northeastern private equity groups, a little bit different, a little bit more intense. These guys, you got to feel for, hey, we're going to be partners in this. And at the end of the day, everyone has a different goal for what that partnership looks like. But if you can really think about that and identify it before or during your time in market, that helps with those meetings and those dinners and those getting to know your potential partners. It's funny because you bring up dating. It is so much like dating. Oh, yeah. Right? You get that intuition. You get that gut feeling. Yep. Is there chemistry here? Yeah, right? exactly. Chemistry exists in business too. For sure. And I think what you're talking to, or at least what I'm hearing you talk to is commonality and shared beliefs, shared values, et cetera. And part of that is intuition. I think part of that also comes from really being clear on who you are and what you want and what your vision for your future is. Mm -hmm. Right. Again, like dating. Yeah. Right? And that's part of what I love about my role as well, because with a prospective client or a new client, I do try to relay that and make sure that they're thinking about what are you looking for in a partner? What are you looking to do next? How do you want life to look after a transaction? At the end of the day, we are going to do our best to get you the best value, but we also want to help facilitate the perfect partnership or as close to perfect as you can get. Very well said. I want to talk to you about scaling yeah. because you talked about some exponential growth in the family business following the private equity acquisition. What worked for you guys? So, I mean, at a very basic level, we grew via acquisition very quickly. I mentioned seven companies we acquired in less than three years. And I've not heard of in the lower middle market that quick of scale. And that was something that attracted us to our partners. They were very aggressive in their growth goals, which aligned with ours. That created, for a company that had never done acquisitions before, a massive learning curve, but also a massive opportunity. I mean, the magic of private equity in a lot of cases, specifically within roll-ups, right, is that scale. A company is worth 5x, for example, You can buy smaller companies for less than that, but the day that gets into the fold, they're worth that or more. It's a very cool thing that sophisticated investors understand, and maybe the main street business owners don't. So growth via acquisition is just a massive opportunity to scale very quickly, uh, to bring in new talent, new skill sets, to be able to take best practices back and forth. And that ended up being very much where I and my wife spent our time was on new acquisitions and bringing those into the fold, uh, sharing culture, getting to know the new employees. And it's a, a, a cool experience. Many challenges for sure, but we certainly could not have grown as quickly as we did without growing via acquisition. Well, let's talk about those challenges for a second, because you're talking about a family business absorbing seven companies with their own cultures, their own people, their own behaviors, their own set of practices. How 
did you guys handle the blend of the mixing bowl? Oh yeah. Well, every situation's different, right? There is no one size fits all acquisition integration strategy. Cannot happen. Each is very reliant on the personality of the previous owners, the personality of their key employees. And each one was very different. Some went into it with just an incredible attitude and that became easy because you could have an open conversation about, hey, how, how do we want this to best work? Here's what we do. Let's do it. Perfect. Others, and this just happens in all growth via acquisition strategies, other business owners just, you could tell, were not really trying to play ball. And at that point, knowing that, understanding that, and then figuring out how to make a smooth transition as possible comes into play. So uh, I, at the very basics, it's getting systems aligned. It's getting uh, sales training and strategy aligned, making it that McDonald's scale. You get the same experience here as you do here. On the other hand, the personality thing was just so different. It's about getting to understand your new coworkers and employees and what works for them. And each business was just so different, even more so than I would have anticipated. Talk more about that. Yeah. I mean, we, we think about my family business's culture. These almost exclusively were also family businesses. Mm -hmm. So they had unique cultures. No two were alike. Um, they had key employees treated just very differently. Right. And some loved how it, their situation was. Some didn't. Some thought they were doing things perfectly. Some thought they were doing things horribly and were very open to new ways of doing things just all across the board challenges, but it was a fun challenge because it was all people. Mm -hmm. It was all people. I find people to be fascinating. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't. <laughs> a lot of people find the people side of business to be annoying mm -hmm. or something they just have to put up with. What tips do you have in navigating the challenges that different personalities present? Oh man, I don't know that I'm the right person to answer that, but I'll, I'll shoot my shot. It really is. I'm, I'm very casual in my approach with people within an organization. I want to be able to go out to lunch or a coffee and learn about what they want, expect of this experience and then set expectations, right? If they're not aligned. So I think it's setting expectations, setting uh, expectations of what their future is going to look like, but it's also help let them shape it too. Where do you want to end up? How can we play a role in getting you to where you want to go? So it's hearing at every level from the CEO and the former business owner all the way down to the, the lowest level technician. It's identifying the talent. You got to kind of go through and would never use this terminology in this case, but it's sort of a job interview with these people. It's not deciding whether or not you're going to hire or fire them, but it is deciding what exactly you have. Mm -hmm. Is this low level person who joined the company six months ago? Do they have the ability to move up within the organization? And in a lot of cases, the answer was absolutely. This person is incredible. In some cases at the highest levels, you could tell it was not going to be a good fit. And then you had to kind of figure out how to navigate those waters. Yeah. So really it comes down to being human, mm -hmm. right? Talking to people as humans yeah, and then getting clear so on people's abilities yeah. and where they would best fit within an organization. Absolutely. And then just making sure expectations are aligned. And if they're not getting them aligned. I love that you said that. I couldn't have paid you to say it better myself. <laughs> I beat my drum all the time about clear expectations and boundaries and all of that fun stuff. Being that you and your wife focused on new acquisitions, how did you go about identifying the acquisition opportunities? 
So in our case, it really was a result of years of business, right? The family business had relationships everywhere. And I think in every single case, the acquisitions we made were within that network, general okay. network. So identifying in that case was not super challenging other than maybe prioritizing. Where do we want to focus first? We can't do them all at once. So how do we want to, uh, what's the lowest hanging fruit? What's the biggest potential opportunity? So that was really it more than identifying. Okay. I think in a broader sense, identifying potential acquisitions comes down to if I had unlimited resources, what do I want this company to look like in a decade? And then going through and, and figuring out what companies would help you get there if you're in an acquisitive mode. Yeah. So we spent a lot of time talking about your family business and you inside your family business. Let's talk a little bit about you in your investment banking roles. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So company again is called Focus Investment Banking, super unique firm in that it's very entrepreneurial, one of the most active in the lower middle market. We have 12 different industry verticals. As you mentioned, my focus is primarily in that automotive aftermarket vertical. But something that drew me to this firm was each senior banker has executive or operational experience within the industries they represent. So I mentioned that empathy for business owners. To me, that's huge. I am not a career banker. I don't consider myself one. And, and many of the senior bankers in the firm are not. And I think that's a very unique value proposition to be able to understand from the other side. You don't usually hear the word empathy and investment banking <laughs> going hand in hand. Yeah, it's so it's so different. But I, you also really don't talk to a ton of bankers in the lower middle market. And I think that's a really important difference. I think your perfect investment banker in the lower middle market is very different than your perfect investment banker in the upper middle market, even, or certainly publicly traded markets. Very different uh, processes, very different skill sets. Yeah. What's striking me so much about your entire story is how much, how people centric it is. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I don't want to understate the importance of the financial models of course, and the Sims of course. and you have to, you have to do that. But after that really, and before that it is people. Yeah. 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 I come from the commercial real estate world yeah. and some of my mentors have always said you should be able to value a real estate building on the back of a napkin. Mm -hmm. Everything else is just, you know, yeah. cherry on top. Yeah. You, you have to know the deeper fundamentals and the models and things like that. But once that box is checked, it's, it's people. It's people. How do you think your past experiences have set you up to excel in this current position? Yeah, it, it's really worked well. And I, I want to answer that, but I first want to mention, I view, and I have since college, and I'm very fortunate, I think for this, a career is a story and to be able to make that story the best it can possibly be, you want to have a pretty good idea of where you want to end up. And so I took a sort of circuitous route to where I am, but I think it ended up being the perfect route. And I sort of always had where I am in mind and getting there. And can that story work? Does that story work? Shoot the shot to get where you want to be too. It's, it's, not super related, but I love this story and I'm going to tell it real quick. Yeah, My wife it. is an absolute stud, uh, mentioned the acquisition integrations. She is uh, brilliant with computers and everything. So she's currently a consultant with a Salesforce consulting firm. And 
I take about half credit for getting her that job because she was applying for jobs in the, in the, the world of Salesforce architecture and consulting. And she wasn't having a ton of luck. And I looked at what she was applying to and it was like exactly what she was qualified for listed in the job description. I said, absolutely not. So I bumped it up like two or three levels and she was very uncomfortable about this. And then became a very highly sought after commodity in that world at those very high level jobs. And I think that just goes to show like in a career, shoot a little bit higher than what you think you're ready for. And I've tried to do that in, in every way but it has been circuitous for sure. Back to your original question, I think going from banking, getting kind of that fundamental base knowledge and understanding of the world of investment banking, and then going into the family business in a niche, becoming somewhat of a name within that industry, having a network within the industry in which I'm focused, and then combining those two skill sets to be a very like specific thing has been a dream and a dream job for me. So I think it's just worked out really beautifully. It's striking me journey versus destination because you're saying the destination is very important. And I know I shared this with you earlier, but I have a good friend who used to be a screenwriter in Hollywood and he always says, start with the ending and then figure out how your character gets there. What you're also talking about is allowing for flexibility in the journey and understanding that things aren't going to go exactly the way you plan them out. For sure. But as long as the story still works, right? If you have the beginning and the ending, as long as you don't get disjointed and do things that hurt the story, yeah, it works. There's no one right way to do it, but there are wrong ways. And as long as you don't go the wrong ways to getting toward the goal you want, you're fine. What constitutes a wrong way? Just things that I, especially young people are going to take as a massive generalization, opportunities that might make them a little more money in the short term or give them a little bit more freedom in the short term. But if that doesn't help push forward their career to getting to where they want to be in the mid and long term, it's not worth it. So I think the mistake that I would refer to most is just short term upgrades to pay or lifestyle that do not help you get in the right direction to where you want to go. So always be asking yourself, what next move would be in service of my goals? Absolutely. Especially when you're in the beginning stages of your career, it's not about the earning, right? It's, it's about the learning to not be super, uh, well, whatever. Um, you want to do what you can to set yourself up for success after the first five, seven years of your career. A mentor once told me there's a season to learn, there's a season to earn, and then there's a season to teach. Yeah, love that. Absolutely. And that's so right. Yeah, you want to make moves that are best for your career that set you up to earn down the road at the beginning of your career. And so to chase money for an industry that's different that you don't want to end up in, for example, would be a mistake. It's immediate satisfaction versus in service of the long-term goal. Yep. And that reminds me of the famous marshmallow test which I know I'm going to butcher this, but there was a, uh, a research study done with children and two different groups. And they said, okay, kids, you have a marshmallow. If you wait five minutes, you'll get two marshmallows. Half the kids took the marshmallow right away. The other kids waited the five minutes to get the two marshmallows. The ones who waited exhibited more quote unquote success as the researchers followed them through their professional and personal lives. And it does go back to that idea of instant 
gratification, yep. not necessarily being in service of where you ultimately want to get. Oh yeah. And, and just thinking about it like that, I think is half the battle. So many people don't look at their career as a, a story, right? They're kind of just, how can I move up and doing whatever I'm doing? And that's great. But my advice would be really kind of think within yourself, where do I want to end up and how can I get there? So everybody, Cole is telling you, don't be short-sighted. Focus on the long-term plan. Well, man, ah, sweeping generalization, but <laughs> I, I do like that way of thinking for sure. All right, Cole, rapid fire question time. Let's do it. Ready? Yes. What advice do you have for somebody who doesn't know where they want to go? Mm, I like it. I would say do some research on people within your network or within your network's network and really just get a feel for of, of who has had success. What if that success interests you? And that's something that I've done. Like I'm a LinkedIn fiend and so many of my ideas within my career are seeing people that are five or 10 years ahead of me in my career and the routes that they took to get to maybe where I'd like to go. So it's just explore, take a, take a look within and see what you'd be good at, what you'd enjoy doing and, uh, and, and do it. And some of that comes back to knowing yourself. That's huge. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the starting point, right? And that's, we mentioned easier said than done. That's a doozy. Yeah. All right. Great. Next question. Uh, Take this however you will. Oh man. What do you know now that you wish you knew back then? Man, this is kind of a weak answer, but kind of not knowing at some point is a good thing. And then learning it like, ask me this question in 10 years, I might have a better answer of, of what I wish I knew right now. But going from a, a recent college grad, for example, to like right now, I think I learned everything the way I wanted to learn it. I don't know that I would go back and, and push the magic button and have this knowledge other than maybe some investment advice back then. But hot take, nothing. I, I like how I learned it and uh, I like where I am and well, it, it sounds like the lesson in that is, you know, this is oversimplification, but go, go with the flow. Yeah. And that, my wife would accuse me of going with the, the flow a little bit too much, okay. uh, but that is definitely my personality type too. Like certainly take advantage and know when to not go with the flow, but generally speaking, the flow can take you some pretty good places. Well, and to do that, you need to always be open-minded and have your eyes open toward opportunity. For sure. Yeah, take advantage when the opportunity arises, jump on it, don't miss it. But as long as that flow is moving in the right direction, right? You don't want to go in in the wrong way to your end goal, but as long as that's moving in the generally correct direction, some really cool opportunities come up and then you just have to take them. So just take advantage. Mm -hmm. That's great. Cole, this has been a really fun conversation. Loved every minute of it. Thank you so much for having me and look forward to having you on the Collision Vision as well. Please, everyone, uh, look out for that. That's a, a very fun conversation also. Absolutely. Speaking of which, if people do want to follow what you're doing or get in touch, either for your services from a banking perspective or to listen to your podcast, how can they do that? Yeah, absolutely. So for the podcast, it's called The Collision Vision, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. 
really, really have a great time with that show. It is automotive focused, but a lot of our guests, much like Jacqueline, come from the general business world. So a lot of really fun stuff there. Uh, personally, I mentioned I am a massive fan of LinkedIn. So please feel free to connect on LinkedIn, Cole Strandberg. And uh, my firm's page, you can learn more there, is focusbankers.com. Awesome. Well, Cole, thank you so much for joining us in the studio today. It's been really fun. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you so much. And as always, thank you to our listeners for joining us on another episode of Worked Up. Look out for new episodes on Tuesdays. As you can tell, we have wonderful guests joining us on a weekly basis. Please don't forget to subscribe, like, and leave reviews. And please connect with us on Instagram at Jacqueline Beck Consulting on our website, www.jacquelinebeckconsulting.com or email us at info at jacquelinebeckconsulting.com. That's Jacqueline, J-A-C-L-Y-N, Beck, B-E-C-K. See you next time.